I could not think of a better song for us to enter into our time in the Word here than that. I am no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. And there's a lot of fear going on right now, and so we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. Uh, we are almost all joining our worship time here in the worship center with our incredibly gifted worship pastors who uh, are now together during this time delivering up the worship for us. <clears throat> we also do have a, a chapel worship service for our chapel congregation that now join us for our, our time in the Word as well. We're trying to keep things as similar as they are for you as you are having to worship with us together online. We're now in week two of that, as we all know. <clears throat> we announced initially that this would be uh, at least a two-week adventure for us as a church. And, you know, as we move forward, we're going to have to simply go week by week. We can't do any more than that, and we will keep you informed. We know for sure, obviously, that next week, Palm Sunday, we're going to be online again uh, as our worship time. Ministry programs will still be paused uh, this week. Uh, we're still uh, in, in this, in this uh, holding pattern. And then, you know, I, I can't predict Easter. I, I don't think it's looking great for us to be back together by then, but who knows? Uh, God does, and, uh, and we'll keep you posted. But we need to be prepared that this is a, a short-lived but new season that we're in for ministry, and, uh, and even for how we do things as the church, as we have to stay socially distant. <clears throat> little levity, maybe. I uh, saw this online this week. Uh, these are, are actual uh, you know, logos used by McDonald's and Audi and VW, and to try to communicate uh, you know, kind of public messaging where we are as a culture right now. McDonald's, you know, separated their arches and, and Audi separated their famous circles and VW separated their, their letters. And I smiled at that. And, and, and then I thought to myself, and this is important for all of us, you know, there's a reason that, that McDonald's originally had the arches together. There's a reason that Audi originally had the circles together. There's a reason VW had the letters uh, actually form into each other. And that is that God created us to be organic, relational, community-based people. Uh, and that's what the church is. And, and culture knows that. And so it's weird to see these logos separated like this. And, and if you're feeling that in your own life right now in this social distancing, I would simply say as your pastor, you're feeling normal. <laughs> that we should feel kind of awkward right now. And you know, people say to me, how are you holding up with this? And I say, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm not sure I should. You know, social distancing is, is nowhere found in the Bible. It's not what God wants, but it is what's needed right now uh, for this pandemic. But we need to do everything we can, as I've said all along, to protect the most vulnerable uh, in our community and in our church. And so we do this and we cooperate with it. But, but let's pray that it's, it's short-lived because this is not how God intended, obviously, the church to be. And uh, I can't wait for us to get, get back to uh, how we usually do business as a, a body of Christ. Now, um, last week when we uh, did our second to last message on the Lord's Prayer, you know, I, I was 
following the text. So I talked about forgiveness, and I was very cognizant that, that last week's message was not exactly a COVID-19 coronavirus deal with the fear kind of message. It was on forgiveness. And, and, and again, this is Scottsdale Bible Church, so we follow where the text takes us, and that's where Jesus took us last week. This week, as we wrap up the Lord's Prayer uh, message, man, I, I'm telling you, it is so timely with where we are at right now as a culture and this idea of this pandemic and the coronavirus, and it's going to be an incredible time in the Word today, I promise you. We're going to pray in just a second. And then I'm already working real hard on my Palm Sunday message for next week. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's going to be a great follow-up to this prayer series that we've been in. And again, following what we can do in our culture to follow the Lord Uh, during this time. So let's do this today. Let's pray right now, as I always do, uh, in our time in the Word, and then we're going to dive right in. Our gracious, merciful, heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are holy, and that as we've sung here today, there is nothing that surprises you. We're your children. There's no room for fear. We trust you. And so, Father, I pray that as we explore that theme today, in the very words that Jesus taught us to pray, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, God, I pray that you would teach us something maybe that we didn't know before we came here today. Teach us something, Lord, new. Uh, Lord, if we do know all the stuff we're going to cover today, then at least hammer it home more deeply into our hearts and our minds. God, there's a lot of needs out there today. There's needs in us, and our deepest need is for you. So meet us, we pray, in this time in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I think I know the answer to my own question that I'm gonna ask right now, but this is the great place to start, and that is, have any of you ever been tempted at all in your life? (laughs) been tempted at all? My guess is, I think I know every one of us have. Any of you being tempted right now in this season of your life? Again, my guess is that many, if not most of us, are. And what does that teach us? Here it is. We know that temptation and trials are a huge part of life in this fallen world. I say this somewhat humorously, I'm your pastor and I'm tempted every day by things, food, power, prestige, acquisition, anger, harsh words, even at times hatred, so many things. And as I've said before, if I'm tempted, then the rest of you are goners. It's true. And I don't say that arrogantly as if somehow I'm more godly or spiritual than you, but simply that as a pastor, I am reminded all the time, everywhere I go, each moment of each day, who I am and what my life is about. I was at Home Depot the other day, and I ran into three people from our church that came up and said hi. It happens quite often. And so I have built-in accountability everywhere I go in our community. And yet, even with all of this, I am still tempted on a regular basis by so many things. That's why I say if I'm tempted, then I can't imagine what the rest of you struggle with as well. There's not one of us who is immune to temptation or even from being overcome by it. One of the great Puritan writers, John Owen, once said it this way. I like this quote. He said, traitors occupy our own hearts, ready to side with every temptation and to surrender to them all. 
And he's right. Our fallen nature that lives inside you and me loves temptation. There's something in us that is drawn to it. And each and every one of us knows this and experiences it. So it should not surprise us then that toward the tail end of this very famous prayer of Jesus's that he includes a line about temptation. It's a request before God, a plea, really. Most of us are familiar with this line. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and it goes like this. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. Now, believe it or not, as simple as this phrase sounds, what Jesus is actually saying here and getting at here is not as clear as some might think. And it's not Jesus' fault, it's our, our fallen nature's fault in trying to understand what he's saying. In other words, when you look very closely at these words here, when you actually park in front of them, they present some theological issues that you and I need to work through right now. <clears throat> Things like this. Does God actually lead us into temptation? And if he does, how does that work? And why would he do that? And further, how does he specifically deliver us from temptation? What's that about? And what's our part, <clears throat> if any, in that? You see, billions of people have prayed and still do pray these words every day. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But the question is, what are we actually asking of God when we pray that? And do we know, are we clear what we're asking? These are words, guys, that are worth wrestling with and coming up with clarity upon when it comes to us understanding them, because we pray this so often. Now, before I answer the questions that I just asked, and before I give you a couple of points that I believe will encapsulate the essence of this request before God, we need to deal with one preliminary issue, and that is the use of the word temptation here. Because this word temptation, as you can imagine, is used very often in the New Testament. But here is what many people don't realize, and that is that it's not used in the same sense in every passage in the New Testament. Let me explain what I mean by that. <clears throat> as most of you know, because we've shared this with you uh, probably ad nauseum over the last 12 to 13 years, and then Daryl did it for 25 years before that, uh, the Bible, the New Testament especially, was written in Greek. Uh, that's where we get the phrase, it's all Greek to me. So if you read a Greek New Testament, <clears throat> you probably wouldn't understand it, but that's how it was originally written 2,000 years ago. And yet we all obviously all read English, or if you're from another part of the world, maybe another language. And so we've worked hard to translate our current Bibles from Greek to English. And most of us read then an English Bible. But you've all heard the phrase, lost in translation. And sometimes what happens is that when we take a word from the Greek language and then try to translate it into the English, there's not just one word or concept that works. And it's now true with this idea of temptation. You see, the, the Greek word for temptation that's used all over the New Testament is the Greek word perosmos. You don't have to remember that, but it's perosmos. And it's translated, interestingly, into the English in the New Testament in one of two primary ways, tempt or test. 
tempt or test. And the reason that it's translated that way is because when we look at all the context of this word perosmos in the New Testament, it carries two very different meanings depending on where we find it in the New Testament. Let me show you. This word perosmos can mean tempt to do wrong, so it means somebody was tempted to do something wrong or sinful, or it can mean a test to stay strong, a a test to to build your character up. So one's negative and one is rather positive. And, And again, it's all over the Greek New Testament and even the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So, Genesis 3, we see that the the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to do wrong, and and that obviously, uh, when Jesus in Matthew 4 was in the desert, he was tempted by Satan three times to do wrong. There's examples of that. Perosmos is the Greek word used there to describe that. But then we see other instances, like in uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it uses this word perosmos to talk about how God tested Abraham. You see, we're going to learn here today that God never tempts us. God can't tempt us. James 1.13, that we'll reference here in a few minutes, says that God cannot be tempted by evil and he'll never tempt you with evil. But Genesis 22, using the same word perosmos, says he does test his people sometimes to stay strong. Do you see the difference here? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says that believers need to test their own hearts to see if they're of the Lord. Perosmos is the word used there to describe this. And so you got one Greek word that's used in different ways. In our English Bibles, it's hard to capture this, so this is why this is important here. It can mean tempt to do wrong or test to stay strong, negative or positive. God's not in this one. He'd never do that to you, but he is firmly in this one. So the question becomes, when we go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and it says, lead us not into temptation, which usage is it? And that's what I meant when I said earlier that that it's not necessarily clear. And and historical commentators, experts in the Bible have differed here greatly. There's some ambiguity on exactly which usage is being done here. Uh, Some say that we should translate this, do not lead us into times of testing, that God would never lead us into temptation, but he does lead us into testing. And so obviously it's talking about that more positive testing to stay strong here. The only problem with that understanding of here in in the Lord's Prayer is that it makes it sound like we're asking God to, to not ever test us. And James chapter one, verses two and three says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you experience, and then it uses that Greek word perosmos, this trials and testing, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance and joy. Peter says the same thing. He even says that when we die as believers, our faith is gonna be tested during that, 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 that great, or not the great white throne, but the Bema seat where we get those rewards and, and, and there's gonna be a fire to test the quality of our work this side of heaven. Again, it uses that word perosmos there in a positive way. So why would we ask God to, to not ever tempt us or test us that way? And so others argue, well, it must be using it in the negative way then. You know, do not lead us into temptation, the negative temptation, temptation toward evil. But then we have to wrestle with this. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but this is Scottsdale Bible Church, and you guys want the meat of the word. 
we have to wrestle with when, if we translate this or interpret this as do not lead us into temptation, evil temptation, is would God ever really do that, right? I mean, James 1, verse 13, I'm gonna reference here in a little bit, is very clear. It says that God is not tempted by evil and he'll never tempt you with evil. And so when we say do not lead us into temptation, how would that work? Because God would never obviously do that. Some people try to soften it and say, well, you see that word lead doesn't really mean lead. It just sort of means nudge or place you in the realm of temptation or what have you. No, I looked it up this this week. That word lead means lead. It literally means to pick something up and bring it in. So we're saying to God, God, don't pick us up and bring us into temptation. That's what we're praying here. So I like how some commentators understand the nuance of what's going on here. And this is good. You got to dial into this. They, They say, well, this is probably then a negative request with no expectation of a positive result. Let me repeat that. A negative request with no expectation of a positive result. And you're saying, what in the world is that? You use this all the time. And it's really kind of cool. And for those of you who have a, a good marriage where you, you just love your wife or husband, you've been married for a while or even a short time, there's times where in an insecure but beautiful moment, you might say to your wife or husband, I love you so much, don't ever leave me. I love you so much, don't ever leave me. I've said that to Kim in an insecure but beautiful moment. And, and, and Kim will look at me and say, I made a vow before God. Don't you worry, I'm never going to leave you. And I'm tempted to say to her, well, I actually didn't think you would. (laughs) But you see, there's something in my heart that just says, I hope you never do. You see, it's a negative request with no expectation of a positive result. And what these commentators point out is, could it be that that's exactly what's going on here in the Lord's prayer? That we say to God, don't, 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 don't ever lead us into temptation. And God says, well, I'm not gonna do that because that's not what I do. But we're basically saying to God, in essence, I so do not want to go into that realm of evil temptation. Help me, God, here. It's a way of asking God for his help. I actually think this is the best rendering, the best understanding of what Jesus is teaching us here. That the temptation being talked about is indeed that negative temptation, because then he goes on to say, deliver us from evil. So it's a negative temptation being talked about here. And we're not suggesting that God would actually lead us into that, because he wouldn't. But our heart cry is, God, we hate temptation, we hate evil, so please, Lord, protect us from it. That's the essence of this prayer. So now, with this under our belt, with this understanding that the request is actually a request to be kept from temptation toward evil, we're ready for our first of two clarifying points. And this one's really worth, these are both really worth understanding because of the essence of what Jesus is asking us uh, to pray in this prayer. And here's the first one, and that is that God does not cause temptation by or toward evil. We've already said that a thousand times, but he sometimes allows it. Let me repeat that. God does not cause temptation by or toward evil, but he does sometimes allow it. So think about it, folks. God, by his very nature of who he is, will never directly tempt us toward evil. He can't. 
It would go against his goodness and his righteousness. The Bible is really clear on this. In fact, look finally at that verse that I've referenced a few times, James chapter 1, verse 13. It's really straightforward. No ambiguity whatsoever. It says this, let no one say, when he is tempted, perosmos, I am being tempted, perosmos, by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. <laughs> and so obviously here it's telling us that God is never the author of evil. He cannot himself be tempted by evil, and he'll never tempt you with evil. That's why that, it was important that we spent a few minutes on understanding what do we mean by do not lead us into temptation, and yet, having said this, it's important to realize that this does not mean, however, that God will not allow us to be tempted because the Bible makes very clear that he does. This is really important for you to dial into. God does allow us in this fallen world to be tempted. He allows Satan and our own flesh and even this world to lure us in. We'll wrestle with why he does this in a minute here, but the Bible makes it really clear that he does. Genesis chapter 3, third chapter in the Bible, God allowed the serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. Even more to the point is Job chapter 1, where God and Satan actually have a discussion about whether Satan can tempt Job. And God says, go for it. I don't think he'll cave in. And, and, and initially, he certainly doesn't. And there's plenty of examples about this in which we see that God doesn't cause temptation, but he does allow it in our lives. And once we understand this, we do need to ask the question, why? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, why would God even allow us to be potentially involved with evil? But why would he allow us and those around us to not just flirt with evil, but even know that we might fall into it and then even foist it on those around us? And the answer is twofold, and both are core to good Christian theology. And I'm going to spend no time on the first answer and the rest of our time on the second answer. The first answer, and we've talked about this a lot around here, it's core to Christian theology, is that God allows it because we live in a fallen world that is not our home. This is not the way God intended it. And for now, he's allowing sin and evil to run rampant and run its course. In other words, the Bible makes really clear, God did not cause sin, he did not cause evil, we did. And though he could put a stop to it, and someday he will, he is for now patiently waiting for all to come to repentance and come home to him. C.S. Lewis said it greatly when he was alive, he said it the best, he said that life is like a play, and we're all players on the stage and the stage is corrupt in many ways. There's things going on in this stage that the playwright never intended, that the director never intended, but we're all doing our thing up here. And Lewis says that someday the playwright and the director are going to come up on the stage and they're going to call for the curtain and they're going to end all the shenanigans. They're going to end the play on the stage. But he says, when they do, it's game over. <laughs> when they do, the play is done at that point, and kind of like musical chairs, wherever you're left standing <laughs> is where you're left standing. And so for now, God puts up with all these, this evil stuff. He does so because he knows this is a fallen world. It's not how he intended it, and he does that because he's letting it run its course, and someday he's going to put a stop to it. 
That's the first answer we have to why God would allow uh, temptation and evil to exist. Uh, But the second reason is even more practical, it's more beautiful, and that is that while God lets a fallen world remain fallen for now, now don't miss this, God uses the bad things in this fallen world for his glory and our good. Man, if you don't hear anything else today or this whole weekend, hear this. God uses bad things, the evil things, even the tempting things, for those who submit to him for his glory and our good. This is all over the Bible. Look at how one of my favorite passages, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, says it. It says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. You ever experienced that? You're suffering. Some of you are right now, man. You tie a knot at the end of your rope and you hang on for dear life. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Because as you persevere through this, you become a deeper person, a more other-centered person, a loving person. You become more the person through this trial and temptation and difficulty that God wants you to be. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. You become a person who knows how to get through the next difficulty. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love now has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. So don't miss this. One of the primary reasons God allows, not causes, but allows you and me to struggle in this fallen world and even sometimes feel the consequences of our own mistakes and even others' sin when we're recipients of that is that he chooses to use the crappy parts of this fallen world for our good and ultimately for his glory. That's why. God allows these things to happen. That's why, as we'll see in a minute, we pray, you know, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, knowing that God, as we'll see in a minute, many times does want to answer that prayer. But even when we have to go through the difficult times, he is still in control. He's still doing his best work because sometimes he does his best work against a a dark backdrop. I have uh, told you, Lots of stories over the years about my dad. Dad's given me permission to do that, and it's a very real part of my journey in life. I I haven't told you as much about my dear mom who passed away two years ago. I I think I've showed you this picture before. This is a picture of me and mom. It's very grainy because it was, excuse me, one of the very last pictures that I took of me and my mom. This was in northern Michigan. We were there for her sister's funeral, so we're just getting out at a park for the gravesite, and uh, and, and it was a cold fall day, and so uh, I, I grabbed my, I called her my little mom, I grabbed my mom uh, by the shoulder there. She's so small, you can see that, we'll get to that in a minute. She, she was always very petite, and I gave her a kiss, and uh, I said, it's going to be okay. And the reason I love that picture is because, again, it was one of the last pictures I took, but when mom passed away, I was in her office, and she had, had somehow printed this out and posted it and put it on her desk, because that was such a meaningful picture to her as well about our relationship. I, I got to be careful how I share this because mom was a very, very private person. Unlike my dad who said, share anything you want. I don't care. My mom was a very classy lady who didn't like her, her uh, you know, uh, dirty laundry to ever be shared publicly. And so I, I've always respected that. But I don't think she mind me sharing this about her. And that's that she did grow up. She was born in the 1930s in a, in a rather difficult home. 
I can't say much more than that, but she experienced quite a bit, a bit of disappointment, hurt, even abuse in, in her childhood. And uh, this had, took a real toll on her when she became a young adult, when she met my dad. And as a result of that, my mom struggled with a lot of things during her adulthood. Um, she, uh, the reason she's so small is not just physical, but she struggled with bulimia all of her adult life. She never weighed more than 90 pounds. She usually hovered somewhere around 80 pounds. One day we were in the car a few years ago. I was driving her, her Avalon. I was on one of my regular visits to see her and dad. <clears throat> and uh, we were driving down the road in her Avalon. And I kid you not, the, the light was blinking on, on the dashboard. And mom said, what's that? And I said, that's the off airbag light in the passenger seat, mom, because the car thinks that I have like a book or a child or something like that there because you're so light, you're setting it off. And she said to me that, she goes, oh, I weighed myself this morning and I weighed 79 pounds. And I looked it up and in the Avalon, it goes off at around 80, 79 pounds. And my mom was a very petite lady and struggled with an eating disorder most of her adult life. She was in counseling a lot for it and, and accepted the Lord in the late 1980s. And between the counseling and certainly bringing Jesus into her life, we saw a transformation start to happen in my mom sometime around middle age and, and moving into her senior years. And my mom had this uncanny ability to, to, to love people, especially love the hurting, based on her own pain. She became a hospice volunteer in Cleveland. And she had this amazing ability to, to sit with people who were dying, and she wouldn't be phased by it, she wouldn't be thrown by it. She could just love them, pray with them, hold their hand. In fact, this is not hyperbole, it's true, she... It became so good at what she did that back in the 1980s, she became the first full-time paid head of all volunteers for hospice in Cleveland. She was so good at helping recruit other volunteers and help them learn how to be with those who are hurting that they actually paid her, first time ever, to do that in the Cleveland area. And she was known by her friends and her family as this merciful, profoundly ministering spirit person uh, to those who were dying. And if you were to ask my mom how she became that type of person, here it is, gang, she would say that all those years of pain, all those years of disappointment, all those years of hurt, that God took that and, and he shaped in her the kind of personality and character and person that allowed her to be so profoundly rich and deep and merciful in helping others. God took the difficult things of her life and he used it for her good, others' good, and his glory. And you see, here's the point, and many of us have learned this, and that is that God does that all the time. We hear story after story, even now through this COVID-19 pandemic, we are hearing stories of how God is taking this awful time and yet doing what only he can do in the most difficult situations. The Bible has tons of stories on this. Our lives have tons of stories like this. My mom learned this. And so the point is this, because we're going to move on here right now. It's good and fine to pray and lead us not into temptation. Because no one wants to go through difficult and trying times. And as we're going to see in just a second here, there will be times that God spares us from them. So we pray for it. But as we are praying for this, we need to also remember that in a fallen world, 
that though God doesn't cause evil, he allows difficult and trying times to come into our lives. It's part of the machinations of this fallen world. And yet, as only God could do, he's even going to use that for our good and his glory. As only a good, holy, and creative God can. This is the first thing that we take away from this amazing line in the Lord's Prayer, and do not lead us into temptation. And now you and I know what we mean by that. So let's pray it on a regular basis. Now, we're fast running out of time, and there is a second key theological issue that we need to contend with in doing a deep dive here into this one verse in the Bible. And it's best broached by me simply giving you the point up front, and then we will fill in the gaps. So here is the second point that we take away from verse 13 of the Lord's Prayer. And it obviously involves the second half of this petition, and it's this, that when we are tempted by or toward evil, I've worded this very carefully, when we are tempted by or toward evil, God wants to deliver us from it. Jesus could not be more clear. This is not ambiguous. <laughs> he says that we should pray and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And before we understand what deliver means, let me just take one minute to say this. <clears throat> this is the cry of every human heart. Believer and unbeliever, it's an atheist praying a foxhole prayer. Every person at some point in their lives has cried out to God, deliver me. At marriage on the rocks, deliver me, Lord. Kids in trouble, deliver me, Lord. Job loss, 3.2 million unemployment claims this week, deliver me, Lord. <clears throat> Emotions getting the best of you, anxiety, fear, worry, deliver me, Lord. How about this one? Nasty virus going around the world, creating panic and increasing toilet paper sales, deliver me, Lord. And there's not one of us now, one of us here today that has not cried out at some point in our life, in some way, deliver me, Lord. It's universal to the human condition, and it's no wonder that Jesus wraps up this prayer with that request. Now, with that understanding, the question or issue we need to contend with, however, and we got about 10 minutes to do this, is precisely how are we asking God to deliver us? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> What are we expecting God to do in answering our prayer to deliver? And in what ways does he actually deliver? And is there anything he wants from us in the process? Now, let's unpack this for just a few minutes. And here's the thing. When we look at the totality of what the Bible says as to how God might choose to deliver us, what we find, you ready for this? is both encouraging, <clears throat> and for those of you who are realistic, real, realists, highly realistic. It's both encouraging and highly realistic. Because I'm gonna give you real quickly a two-minute primer right now on what the entire Bible says when you add up all that it says about deliverance. Here's what it says. That when we ask God to deliver us, God's gonna choose, as long as we're trusting him, we'll see that in a minute, uh, to deliver us in one of three ways. You're gonna like this. He'll either deliver us from or deliver us through, or who will deliver us into. Let me repeat that. I hope you're writing this down at home. He will deliver us from, he will deliver us through, or he'll deliver us into. So when we say, Lord, deliver us from evil, 
he's going to do one of these three things. Real quickly, first notice that he delivers us from. This is Psalm 107, verse 6. This is your quintessential verse on God delivering from. He says, then they cried out to the Lord. They mean the Israelites in their time of distress. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He delivered them out of. So this is when God literally snatches us out of trouble, removes us from them, and keeps us from them. I like how one commentator says it. This is when God spares us from the evil or trouble before us. So I'm going to use very quickly the illustration of marital breakdown for these first two things, delivering us from and through. If your marriage is broken down and say you're separated or in just dire straits and you don't know what to do, my guess is you're going to scream out to God in some way, deliver me, Lord. We get that prayer a lot here in our 21st century culture and here at Scottsdale Bible Church. And there are some of you who have experienced and some of you who will experience God delivering you from a bad marriage. He will restore that marriage. He will increase that intimacy. He will keep that marriage together. And though it will take some work, he will deliver you from whatever it is that caused that marriage to break down. We see amazing stories like that in our church because God is good for that type of deliverance. It's a deliverance from. But then notice that there is a second type of deliverance and it's a deliver us through Deliver us through something. What's this about? This is, the, again, the quintessential passage to describe this, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul the Apostle is the one speaking here, and I'm going to read the preamble in which he then describes deliverance because his preamble is important. He says, For we do not want you to be other, unaware, brethren, of our affliction, our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. We despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now here it is. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and he will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Why is this passage important? <laughs> Even though it says he delivered us from, what the context really shows is that God delivered them through. He delivered them from death, but they still had to go through affliction and burdened excessively and had no strength and even didn't want to live. Paul the Apostle will write in this book, 2 Corinthians, that he was put in jail, he was beaten, he was abandoned by friends, he was shipwrecked and thought he would drown. <laughs> so God didn't deliver him from those things. He delivered him through those things and brought him safely to the other side without dying. <laughs> and that's what Paul is praising God for here. And Paul calls that deliverance. So again, using the illustration of marriage, there's some of you who have screamed out to God, deliver me from this, this marital breakdown, God. And what you hope for is that he will restore your marriage and he doesn't. <laughs> and, and, and yet he brings you through it. He brings you through that tunnel of chaos, a very difficult time. And as we saw with that Romans passage, he makes you a better person because of it. He makes you deeper, more trusting in him. And you look back and say, only God, God delivered me through this difficult time because God does that. He sometimes delivers us from, sometimes he delivers us through. And then these two have to do with the here and now. There's a third type of deliverance that God might choose and it's just as real 
And some of you resist this, but, but not after today, hopefully. And that is that sometimes God delivers us into. You're saying into what? <laughs> Here it is. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every, every evil deed. And you're going, yay. Read the second half. And he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. <laughs> Do you get the kind of deliverance being talked about here? <laughs> it, it ain't deliverance here and now. It's not deliverance from. It's not deliverance through. This is deliverance into heaven. Paul is saying, God is going to rescue me. This is the last letter Paul ever wrote, by the way. He died shortly after writing this letter. And he's saying, God is going to rescue me from all this evil I'm experiencing. He's going to bring me home into this place I've been longing for all of my life, heaven. And Paul calls that deliverance. You see, sometimes God chooses to deliver us by bringing us home. And it's no less deliverance than the other two kinds. This week, I, I visited one of my dear friends who is, is dying right now, a very close friend of mine here in Scottsdale, and uh, we got close when I moved here 13 years ago, and uh, it, it's very, very sad. He has a terrible, debilitating illness, and as I was sitting at his bedside this week, praying with him and, and, and interacting with the family, the family brought this up. They agreed that um, this deliverance of bringing him home is actually a good thing and it's a God thing and it's a deliverance because the disease he had has has a terrible progression. And the only way we can see it right now is that God is choosing to bring him home. God's choosing to deliver by saying, I don't want you to suffer anymore. Let's, let's just bring you home where there's no more suffering. And though it takes a lot of faith to understand that, that's still deliverance. Deliver us from, go, give me the next slide here. Deliver us from, deliver us through, deliver us into. It's all deliverance. It's just that God chooses the best kind. So here's why this is important. When you cry out to God, and we all do, Lord, deliver me or deliver us. What you need to understand is that if you trust him, and we'll get to that in just a second, he will deliver you. He's good for you. He's God. But what kind of deliverance is up to him? You know, uh, everybody I'm talking to right now wonders and fears if they have the virus. Uh, statistically, you probably don't, but it's just human nature right now, even in Phoenix here. I mean, if you're in New York, it'd be really bad, but in Phoenix, where you'd, you'd wonder, you know, do you have it? And every little cough or sniffle or fever or whatever uh, is, is obviously scary. And we're all terrified of getting it. I, I get that too. Pandemics are that way. But maybe the deliverance thing will help you. Because you see, when we've been praying for people, and we've had quite a few scares here at the church already with our congregant members who call in, uh, we hit our knees and we do pray that God would deliver. And we actually pray it in this order. Maybe this will help you. We pray, God, deliver them from this. May this not be the virus. May, Lord, you just protect this person and provide and give them power and faith and deliver them from this. If they do get the virus, we're gonna pray, God, deliver them through this. Lord, please deliver them. Make them well. Make them part of that 80% that doesn't have much symptoms. And if they are part of that 20%, Lord, may, may the doctors have skill and wisdom. Deliver them, Lord, through this. We believe God hears that prayer. But God, in his amazing love for you and wisdom, might say, I'm going to choose to deliver into. 
It's funny that the world would maybe call that a worst case scenario. Christians would call it what? A best case scenario. Because Paul the Apostle says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so here's my point. No matter what happens, no matter what God does, I know there's still a lot of fear, but no matter what happens, if you trust in him, if you pray the Lord's prayer and deliver me from evil, you win. (laughs) No matter what option God chooses, you win. Because he's either going to deliver you from or or deliver you through or deliver you into. And again, for those of you who say, well, I don't want to be into right now. Well, I get that. But trust me, when you wake up on the other side and your Savior's meeting you, you're going to change your tune at that point. And so we have no need to be fear, fearful. We have a Savior who wants to deliver us. Now, what does he want from us? Very quickly, and then we're going to wrap this up. He does want us to trust him. And that is where you have to cooperate with this. God wants us to trust him. If you think it's just about praying a magical prayer and then living a fear-filled, non-courageous life, you're wrong. God says for us to, to appropriate, this prayer, appropriate this prayer to our lives of deliver us from evil, you have to trust that he is going to do that. Psalm 22, verses four and five. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. So I put it there in yellow as I do quite often so you wouldn't miss it. Trusted, 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 delivered, delivered, not disappointed. I see a link there. How about you? And then look at this passage here. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 10. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. So we need to trust him to deliver us from evil. He's good for it. He will deliver you, but he's concerned that we trust him. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, Lord, from evil. We love you, and we trust you, and we know that you will. It's a great COVID-19 prayer to pray. Now, we're going to wrap up our series, and this right now before, uh, I think it's Kevin coming up to close our service together, and uh, time together, and so we're going to wrap up in two ways. First, uh, or secondly, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer in a minute. Great wrap to the series. Before we do that, however, let me just make one comment on the final line in the Lord's Prayer. It's this line that many of you have prayed over the years, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You might be wondering, why doesn't that occur in the English Standard Version? Why doesn't it occur in the New, New International Version? And why is it in brackets in the NASB? And why does it just appear there normally in the King James? It's simple. It's not complicated. It's not really that big of a deal. It doesn't occur in the earliest manuscripts. Remember I told you about Greek to English. It doesn't occur in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. It occurred later on, but still very early, like 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. It occurred in some of the later manuscripts, a lot of them very widely distributed. In other words, almost certainly somebody added this to the end of Jesus' prayer. And, and so our best guess is that Jesus didn't actually say and finish the prayer, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Some Christian came along and said, hey, that'd be a good ending to the prayer. So that's why it's in brackets here. That's why it doesn't appear in some of your other translations. I guess maybe call me a traditionalist. I like ending the prayer that way. I, I like how one commentator says it. He says that this is both theologically profound and contextually suitable, <laughs> meaning it's okay to pray it. And I like praying it. So 
Uh, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer right now. So with the very few people we have here, uh, come on guys, stand, and uh, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And then all of you at home, if you can't stand, that's fine, but it might be good if you could. Let's just stand and, and recite the Lord's Prayer together, and then Kevin will close our time. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.